Next, this month's special series focus on global medicine. ReachMD is taking an in-depth look at how medicine is working toward health and longevity for people around the world. Join us all this month for the latest medical research and treatment across borders. You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. Joining us to discuss the medical tourism industry and its effects on physicians in the United States is Renee Marie Stefano, president of the Medical Tourism Association and also the editor of the Medical Tourism Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for allowing me to participate. You know, our audience is almost entirely physicians, and they do get somewhat anxious when they hear the term medical tourism. To begin with, I wonder if you could address this anxiety and also at the same time tell us a little bit about your not-for-profit organization. Medical tourism should not be a term that doctors are afraid of or, or get nervous about. Really what we're talking about is patients that need some sort of access to health care and for whatever reason they can't have that access here in the States, for instance. And so what you're seeing now is patients that are going to their doctors and their physicians and they're saying, look, I really need to have this problem resolved and I'm considering going overseas. And so doctors really should be receptive of this idea. They should be receptive to the idea that patients are going to try to make a consumer-driven choice on their health care and actually make themselves well. And it's a good source also for patients coming into the U.S., to have doctors that are willing to accept them here. So we look at the relationship between traveling patients and physicians located in the States as both on a referral basis, but also as a new source of patients for aftercare and continuity of care because the patients need to see the physicians when they return home. The AMA House of Delegates addressed this not too long ago and tried to come up with a set of guidelines for what or how we should respond to patients who are going out of the country. What do you think some of these guidelines should be? What should we tell them? How should we protect them? And again, how do we address when they come back after having their procedures done out of the country? Well, the key word is really transparency. The AMA's guidelines are really a set of common sense practices for physicians or employers or insurance companies. And the idea is really transparency. Patients need to go get into the decision of making their overseas health trip with all the education that they possibly can. They would need to know about the international accreditation of the hospital. They would like to see the information about the outcomes of the procedures that they're looking for, information about the surgeons, the transparency in terms of legal liability. They really need to know what they're getting themselves into. And so the AMA guidelines really outline this voluntary nature of medical travel, the transparent nature, and, and so that really patients for the first time are making a 100% consumer-driven choice for the procedures that they're receiving overseas. You know, I think initially hospitals didn't pay a great deal of attention when people were going out of the country for cosmetic procedures or dental procedures. These were basically outpatient procedures. However, now hospitals are seeing people who are taking maybe their most lucrative and elective procedures outside the country. That is, orthopedic procedures, knees and hips, and cardiovascular surgery. Should hospitals in the United States and the specialists who take care of them, the orthopedic surgeons and the cardiovascular surgeons, have some degree of tension or anxiety about this? I don't believe so. I, I think one of the misperceptions is that the patient who is having an orthopedic procedure here in the States that's going to be the same patient that is actually traveling overseas for care. What we're finding is that's not the case. Most of the patients that are traveling overseas for, for procedures like orthopedics and cardiovascular, they are actually either underinsured or uninsured. And so they wouldn't be in those hospital rooms anyway. They wouldn't be in those doctors and orthopedic specialist office anyway. 
because they can't afford it. So if you take it, for example, a knee replacement patient who has gone to the hospital and has an estimate of a $40,000 knee replacement, and he doesn't have access to that $40,000, he's not going to be in the operating room of that, of that hospital. He's going to be actually living the next few years of his life in pain or on pain meds or taking multiple trips to the doctor to renew the prescription for pain meds. So the patients traveling overseas for care are really, they don't have another choice. And so we're not taking bread off the tables of our doctors or, or taking a lot of income out of our hospitals. So you're saying they're the underinsured or the people who have no insurance that are leaving? Right. So in the example that I gave, an orthopedic patient, for instance, whose insurance company will cover $10,000 of the $40,000 knee replacement, that's a situation of an underinsured patient. Or someone with a, a high deductible plan, their deductible is $15,000, and they don't have access to that $15,000 before their insurance kicks in. So that's sort of the type, the largest percentage of patients that we're seeing are underinsured or uninsured. I see. You did mention one thing about the inflow of patients, you know, and, and what I'm reading is this is a number, and I know there are no exact statistics on this, but many people feel this is an overinflated number that Canadians are not flooding into the United States for their health care any longer, that there's a myth that foreign care is not good and therefore everyone should come to the United States. Certainly early in my training I saw a lot of people from outside the United States coming here for care, but I wonder if really the inflow of the uh, patients into the United States is really greatly over-exaggerated. Deloitte did a study that estimated approximately 400,000 patients came into the U.S. in 2007 for health care. They're coming out with a new report with some updated numbers. The 400,000, that number is significantly reduced since 9-11, since it's become more difficult to obtain visas. The largest number of patients coming into the U.S. for care come from the Middle East, South America, and also Canada. And so I think those numbers have decreased since 9-11. We're starting to see a very interesting trend, which is a focus of inbound medical tourism. Our association recently released an issue of the magazine just focused on inbound medical tourism. So you'll see regions such as Texas, Texas Medical Center, or Miami, that are sort of creating healthcare clusters and trying to participate in the medical tourism space to attract patients from overseas, because now it's become much more competitive for them. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me to discuss medical tourism is Renee Marie Stefano, president of the Medical Tourism Association. You know, we touched on, and I'd like to return to this because it's such a big topic in the United States, the underinsured. Kaiser Foundation reported that half of the patients in the United States have been without insurance in the last decade. And a third of our patients have been without insurance for as long as one year. Well, if we talk about the underinsured in the United States, we're talking about a huge part of our population that may be looking at this option to leave the United States for health care. It's no small number. How do you address this? Well, I think we're going to see a lot more of this underinsured with health care reform. I think... You know, when you talk about the cost of health care and increasing access, the idea is to reduce the number of uninsured patients. But in effect, what's going to happen is we're going to increase the number of underinsured patients. And the reason for that is that we can't simply provide 100% health care benefits with maximum coverages and low deductibles. So whatever types of plans that are going to become available, it'll give patients access to doctor's visits and diagnostic care and perhaps reduce the number of patients that are using the emergency rooms as their primary care place of help. 
But what you're going to see is that the plans that are offered and required to be offered through employers and insurance companies, they're not going to cover that $40,000 knee replacement either. There's going to be a price to pay for that, either in a high deductible or there will be a cap on the amount that procedure will be covered. I'm glad you brought up health care for reform, and certainly you and I will not uh, resolve it today. Nobody seems to be able to, to come up with it, and if you follow it, it seems to be different every day. But I think an important thing to look at is that the part of the group of people who are underinsured are 25-year-old people who choose not to have health insurance and then are caught with an illness, or actually even people who are making four times the poverty level, i.e. $88,000 a year and have a family of four. And those are people that you and I would consider underinsured. So these are the people you think will seek this as an option. I do believe that those are the people that are going to look outside of the system, their existing local health care system for options. I think we've become extremely educated with the Internet, providing a tremendous amount of information on health care. You're going to find the more you learn about the medical tourism industry and the more you talk to patients who have traveled overseas or are interested in traveling overseas, these are very, very educated people. They've become extremely educated about the procedure that they need, about their options overseas, about outcomes. It's really consumer-driven. And I think that if we need to make these choices within the states, then I think we're going to you know, broaden our horizons a little bit and open our eyes to what's available outside of the country. We have a tremendous number of people that are retiring outside of the states. Those people will need access to health care. People are traveling more. Those people will look for options to incorporate their vacation or their trip to get some health care done, whether it's executive wellness exams, cancer screenings, especially in the screenings and preventative medicine, we've become very educated about the importance of that. However, some of those services are really unaffordable. And so if we can go and, and have our vacation and, and get our executive wellness exam or pre-cancer screenings done overseas, we might be inclined to do so. Let me just touch on the subject of how is quality in countries like Thailand or India or any of the other countries that our patients are going to. The Joint Commission for Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, I think, has approved over 300 hospitals. How do you respond? They have approved them, but really every place I've looked, I have a great deal of difficulty finding anything about their outcomes. So how could you respond to quality where our patients are going? It's certainly a challenge. Our first level of judging quality is the, the accreditation of the hospital. Now, Joint Commission International is the international arm of, of Joint Commission. It's a different standard. It's actually a less stringent standard than the Joint Commission accreditation of our U.S. hospitals. So it's a misperception that it's one and the same. It is not. There are other international accreditation systems, Accreditation Canada, Australian accreditation. You have Trent coming out of the U.K., you have NIAHO, different organizations that are doing international accreditation. And then also what we look to is ISQA, which is the accreditor of the accreditors. So ISQA accredits JCI. It also accredits Accreditation Canada, for instance. And so we sort of like look at these different levels of accreditation of the hospital and to set these standards. But you're absolutely correct. There's no uniform set of quality indicators. And it's one project that our association is working on is to create a short list, single set of quality indicators with a single methodology that can be used universally so that we can truly benchmark one hospital against another. A subject that I have to touch on is now my patient comes back to the United States and I have to take care of, say, their post-operative complications. What do I do about that follow-up? And certainly something that we have to address is where is the liability going to be when something doesn't go right? Basically, we have created a 
set of best practices from medical tourism facilitators, which are the companies that help patients get from point A to point B, and also for the international patient departments of the hospitals. And the best practices really advocates creating a dialogue between a domestic doctor and the international doctor in advance of the patient's departure. Now, in terms of liability, it's, you know, we've gotten into this defensive medicine type of situation where doctors don't want to touch a patient because, you know, they, they didn't create the problem, now they don't want to exacerbate the problem. As an attorney, I mean, the, the liability for a doctor that does a subsequent corrective procedure is very, is very minimal. It's going to be focused specifically on the work that that doctor has done. So a, a doctor in the States helping a patient afterwards, for instance, treating an infection or, or whatever, is not going to be held liable for a, a negligence of a procedure that was done, say, in Singapore. In terms of the liability, patients understand through their contracts before they leave that the choice of law and choice of venue for any claims will be in the destination country where they have the procedure done. And they understand that there is a price to be paid for paying less for your health care. And part of that price is that you're agreeing to not have access to the U.S. legal system. The difference is it's amazing the overseas providers, their reputation is everything to them. And one bad story that goes to the media can destroy a thousand good positive outcomes that they've had. And so they bend over backwards, really going out of their way to try to make that patient whole, try to get them well. And say they're not afraid of doing corrective procedures because they feel that it will be an admittance of, of guilt or, or neglect. They want to do the corrective procedures. So it's a little bit different mentality of the physicians overseas than we have here. And I think that is, is going to benefit the industry tremendously. And another reason why U.S. physicians should not have anxiety about treating patients that are returning home for aftercare. Well, I think physicians here in the United States are certainly learning to say, I'm sorry when there's an error and we'll make it right. The Oklahoma state of Oklahoma was the first one to have this kind of concept, and I think our physicians are beginning to realize that is the way to gain trust in our patients. I'd like to thank our guest, Renee Marie Stefano, who is head of the Medical Tourism Association, for opening our eyes to a problem that is not going to go away. It's going to become even greater, and probably along with health care reform, there'll be even maybe more patients who will select this option. I think doctors should become aware of it and be able to deal with it when it comes in their office. I want to thank you again for coming to talk to us today. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening for ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com or download our free ReachMD iPhone application, Medical Radio. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Global Medicine. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.